Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Right, now it's time for Wow That's Interesting. Wow! So, Alan, what have you got for Wow That's Interesting for this episode? Well, very unfortunately, a major train derailment on the 12th of August near Stonehaven in Aberdeenshire, Scotland, led to the death of three people after heavy rainfall washed material onto the track. In just four hours around the time of the accident, some 79 millimetres of rain fell in the area. A UK Met Office prediction of the chance of thunderstorms was first issued at 10am on the 8th of August 2020, four days before the event. Most of the UK's railway earthworks, that is the sloped ground beside the track, were built more than 150 years ago. They have steep and unreinforced slopes and are not as robust as their modern-day equivalents. What actions being taken to prevent such disasters happening again? Two task forces have been established to look into the management of earthworks and the best use of weather data. Alan, tell tell me more about the Weather Task Force. It aims to help the railway network operator to better understand the risk of rainfall to its infrastructure, drawing on the latest scientific developments in monitoring, real-time observations and weather forecasting. Are current rainfall forecasts good enough to pinpoint with sufficient time for action to be taken to avert such disasters? That's an important question. As we know, the spatial resolution of numerical weather prediction models is increasing all the time as the science and technology of forecasting improves. The aim is to capture as much local detail as possible. But in addition, we need to remember that rainfall forecasts, like all other weather data, involve a probabilistic estimate of what is likely to happen. So the question facing decision makers is how do they react to a probabilistic forecast? Should we expect more heavy rainfall events in future as the global and regional climate warm because of human activity? Yes, that is possible, although the scientific issue of the change in the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events is still being addressed. In addition, the prediction of extreme weather events is also benefiting from recent developments in machine learning and data analytics. In fact, events such as those involving heavy rainfall leading to landslides and flooding underline the multidisciplinary nature of hazards. In this case, meteorology, geology, hydrology and structural engineering. This in itself presents a scientific challenge. What about the ongoing issue of making sure that those that need the weather information receive it and act upon it in a timely and effective way? Many organisations are typically involved in making such decisions and this presents inevitable communications issues which must be resolved. 
What's the potential for cooperation between the public and private sectors in this area? Whilst in many countries the necessary information is provided by public organisations, there are exceptions. For example, in Japan, it's a private company, Weather News Incorporated, which provides a bespoke railway weather service for the authorities that run the railway system. So the potential for public-private cooperation is clearly there. I think such hazards remind us how multifaceted the science and technology, as well as the appropriate decision-making, actually are. In considering this one hazard, it is essential to take into account weather events, geology, engineering, climate change, and multi-organisation cooperation and communication. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. In this episode of WeatherPod, we've invited Christoph Ramshall into the studio to discuss just how the public and private sectors can work together to maximise the socio-economic benefits of weather information. Christoph is very well qualified in this area. He's part of the senior management of the private sector weather services provider Meteo Blue, and he was a lead researcher for the recent World Bank report on the power of partnership, public and private engagement in hydromet services. We'll explore some of the pros and cons and the challenges and risks of partnerships between organisations from different sectors of the global weather enterprise. And this was very much revealed in the Power of Partnership report. We really only have time to scratch the surface here of what's becoming a vital strategic issue for the global weather enterprise. So we may return to this key topic in a future episode. Christoph, welcome to the WeatherPod. Thank you. It's great to join you. Christoph, I'd like to start by asking you what was the motivation for the World Bank's report, The Power of Partnership, for which you helped carry out the research and draft the document? Well, over, as you well know, of course, over the last few years, stakeholders from the public, private and academic sectors had discussed uh, the potential of public-private collaboration frequently, often at the WMO or facilitated by the WMO. Um, became clear that everybody understood various aspects of this complex situation quite well, but that there was no shared, clear, big picture. For example, for many national weather services, public-private engagement simply meant we sell data and services to the private sector and not much more. Uh, The World Bank's GFDRR then uh, took the initiative to create a high-level, consistent overview, or at least make a valid, valiant attempt at it, um, to look at what public-private engagement could mean. Um, And that, they insisted, should be backed up and exemplified by real-world examples. Then another motivation was that the World Bank was also looking for insights that could help them increase the sustainability of development projects in the hydromet domain. So the study's primary objective was to provide guidance on public-private engagement in hydromet services. Uh, It's maybe worthwhile mentioning that in the terminology of the World Bank, they always talk about hydrology and meteorology together and lump it to hydromet services because they are so closely intertwined, but that in our work, we primarily looked at the meteorological end of that. Christoph, I'd, I'd like to start by uh, discussing um, a, a key distinction that's often made 
between public and non-public weather services. And the report refers to this quite frequently. So I wonder if you could say a few words about how you see this distinction between public and non-public weather services. Yeah, again, um, this actually was one of the points where we found that this distinction um, was between the two, public and non-public weather services, what not, was not always well understood. Different people um, thought about this uh, in different ways. So often uh, they confuse the notion of a public service with a public good and assume that public good equates benefit for the public. Um, the economists define that slightly different. Um, we dedicated a section of the report uh, to this um, to lay out some of the basic economic principles that we then applied to structure our findings. Christoph, it's, uh, sorry, it's sometimes said the public weather forecast being a public service has to be delivered by the public sector, yet there are many examples where a private company carries out the, that role. Does this challenge the notion of a distinction between public and non-public services? I don't think um, um, it challenges the distinction of those two. Um, it rather reflects that we actually have to distinguish between a public service and the means by which it is being delivered. So that could be done either by a public or by a private entity. If we use a private entity, there is need for regulation and for service level agreements in order to make sure that the private sector does deliver uh, quality services. So does that mean the need, whether you have the need for regulation and service level agreements, does that negate any cost or efficiency advantages that might be gained from using the private sector to deliver a public service? I wouldn't expect it to, um, because the amount of work that needs to be done is very large compared to the effort that you have to put into uh, supervising and regulating it. Um, and the oversight actually is something that has to be done anyway. Also internally, uh, uh, there are uh, very strict quality controls in many of the established uh, public weather services. I think actually if you went very far down the road to outsourcing to the, of outsourcing to the public sector, um, the biggest risk would be to start losing sufficient expertise in that regulatory agency. Uh, and that would have to be looked at carefully and managed properly. Christoph, I just, just to follow up finally on that, that point, I wonder if you could perhaps just um, mention, you know, how would we know whether a particular piece of weather information or a, or a service was, was public or non-public? Um, are, there, are there examples you could mention that sort of draw out how you'd recognise uh, those two aspects? So, um, again, in the report, uh, in this, actually the same section that lays out the fundamentals, um, we gave a little step-by-step uh, -step instruction, as it were, how one could go about identifying public versus uh, non-public services. Uh, but the principle behind it is that we have to realize that there is a lot of cost and work involved in getting the basics right. So to operate weather stations uh, and other weather measurements, 
to share them internationally so that the global models work, uh, then to either use the results of the global uh, models or add local uh, or regional uh, numerical weather prediction, and then generate the basic and the principal forecasts from that. All of that is something that needs to be carefully safeguarded, uh, quality controlled and kept within the international frameworks that are there in the first place to, to make all of this possible. But when it then comes to setting this in value, to create additional value from it, uh, to realize the social economic benefits, um, we have found that you need uh, quite a bit of specialized activities where the specialization depends on in what industry sector, for example, um, that weather information has to be brought to bear and with what other information uh, it has to be combined. And it's, you know, uh, speaking from Meteor, the Meteor Blue uh, perspective, um, clearly a company like Meteor Blue is enabled by these early phases of the and uh, stages of the hydromet value chain, and then tries to do a good job at the dissemination of the information and at the tailoring of the information um, to specific applications. So I suppose from the point of view of, of member of the public, um, they, may, they may see the media, the TV weather forecast as a clear uh, public service to them, and it's a very general weather forecast that applies um, to 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 all of the members of the public, whereas um, I guess a company like Meteor Blue will provide specific um, advice to companies as to how the weather would affect their operations, and so it it becomes a a very specific tailored activity and therefore non-public. Would that would that be a fair summary? Do you think? I think it's a fair summary in principle, but as always, if you look at the details, you find shades of gray. Uh, so, for example, the delivery of weather forecast via public TV stations to, to the public um, is very often already outsourced as well. Um, in Germany, for example, um, there, there are the, the public uh, TV stations, and they are going through a process of uh, rationalizing uh, quite a few of their services and in that uh, the preparation of the actual weather forecast and even the delivery of the forecast with talent in front of a camera uh, is increasingly done uh, by private companies. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. To move on then, um... I wonder, did you, in your, your research for this, uh, this report, did you discover any issues relating to the production and issuing of severe weather warnings, sort of in the context of the role of the public and private entities? Well, the general observation really was that this is not a trivial question, even for advanced weather services. Not everybody gets it at 100% right. It is critical that these severe weather warnings are consistent. And they have three elements in the warning system that all need to work together. The first is the service has to be able to raise the warning in the first place. Uh, and that goes back to the accuracy of the forecast that's available. 
But then it's also important to assess the potential impact because not every weather warning is, should also be one that is issued to the general public uh, react on. And it has to be an organization or a piece of the organization that is well aware of what the impact of a particular weather event might be. And last but not least, uh, the warning then has to be distributed uh, effectively and efficiently. And it's uh, quite interesting to see that in different countries, depending on what infrastructure is available and also what infrastructure is there for people to receive the messages, that can look quite different, ranging from a push notification in an app to actually people going onto the bicycle, driving around, uh, riding along river dams and shouting the warning to people living there. So the three things have uh, to work together. The different countries that we visited had uh, mastered that to different degrees. Key is to ensure a strong coordination of the three elements, no matter who provides them. And one example that's actually quite nice from Europe is through the meteoalarm.eu organization, weather warnings are coordinated and communicated in a consistent way that always the same symbol, for example, uh, means the same thing and so on. And then finally, it is important that official warnings are easily recognizable as official. They need some sort of a stamp of approval. So if people get news information over different channels, they know in their nation, in their country, which one is the one that is designated as official. So um, if we move on to think about now more of the power partnership, the power partnership's got um, 11 specific recommendations regarding public-private engagement. Can we talk about a few of these in a minute? But could we start with one that recommends developing a structured, continuous and open dialogue between the public, private and academic sectors? Where did this recommendation come from and what benefits do you see coming from such a dialogue? It's uh, interesting that you ask this because actually this was my initial approach into this uh, project and led to my participation in the report. Uh, I found that the need for a structured discussion was actually expressed frequently by participants in meetings such as the Global Weather Enterprise Group um, or also uh, other meetings uh, that I uh, attended or uh, participated in. And members often felt um, that the issues were being discussed but continued to, discover, uh, to, to cover the same ground. Now, in my career, my, my background, uh, although I've always been interested in weather, um, most of my career was in the oil industry. And there I had learned how companies plan big joint ventures uh, that are affected by many uncertainties, unknowns, etc., And also where the participants are actually collaborators and competitors at the same time. So they have to find a good way uh, of handling the situation and make progress. Um, in that process, it was very important to understand everybody's motivation, their drivers for their actions, in other words. And it was very important to understand 
what actually the uncertainties were that affected the common plans and to plan together how to best reduce those uncertainties. So uh, there is a whole host of methods to do that. Uh, various things uh, work if you do this. Um, it's not trivial and it's best um, if one gets facilitation support and so on. Um, but we used some of the techniques to structure our findings and also wrote a little bit more detail up in an uh, appendix of the report. Just to follow up, do you, do you see that dialogue, that structured dialogue? Is that is that a national, um, a national coordinated event in each country, an ongoing event? Uh, how how do you see it actually happening? I see it happening at various levels. Uh, certainly internationally, um, it has started um, with the WMOs uh, open. Uh, now you have to help me. Open consultative platform. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, and similar fora are there. Um, there's also more and more activities around various uh, representative bodies um, for the private sector. They are shaping up to actually um, present a form of presentation. But that clearly has to be extended and complemented by dialogue in the countries themselves. And this dialogue will take different shapes in different countries. So if you look at developed, uh, developing countries in Africa, for example, there are countries who have a very um, sophisticated planning process. And they are very good at uh, strategizing. So that can be used um, to cover the strategizing component and then to complement it with involvement of the private sector. Or conversely, in other countries, there may be an already quite well-developed private sector, uh, but that needs to combine then with some strategic think thinking in the government. To move on to one of the specific recommendations, which I guess could be seen as somewhat controversial, and it's the recommendation to minimize the role of public entities in the provision of non-public hydromet services. So I suppose, in other words, to minimize the role of a national meteorological service in the provision of, of non-public or tailored hydromet services. I wonder where this recommendation came from and why, why you recommended it. Um, we recommended it uh, because we felt the most important thing was to maximize the socioeconomic benefit of weather and data services, which of course is delivered out of the hydromet value chain. We should keep in mind uh, that a free market is perfectly capable of providing the non-public hydromet services because they are paying customers for it. The issue is how do you create the basics to, be, to get to the point that you can deliver those non-public services and that part of delivering the basics is very, very important. It's very important to have public services there. But if then the public entity provides non-public uh, services, it effectively competes in the market and thereby distorts it. This then makes it risky for the private sector to enter the market. And that in turn stifles innovation and optimization of services, something that the market is actually very good at. 
and ultimately it diminishes the overall socioeconomic value. And it's also important to realize that this stifling of the market can happen even if there is regulation aimed at maintaining a level playing field. Just the perception of potentially unfair competition is enough to deter certainly the small companies from participating or makes it very difficult for them. I guess the government has a has a a role here to to set the the sort of regulatory framework. I, mean, I think of some countries where um, the National Meteorological Service is actually encouraged uh, to to find ways to uh, supplement the taxpayers' funds that it gets from the government by selling its services to the to, if you like to the non-public sector. Um, so it's very important. Number one that this is being looked at at the government level, as it is in your particular case, uh, in your particular example. Um, but it's also important to really consider the entire economic value and not just myopically stare at the cost of the provision of the basic services which unlock the potential of the market. Okay, that's, that's very clear. Thank you, Christoph. I, I suppose a follow-up would be to think about um, whether this minimising the role of, say, a national Met service in this context um, could be done in a way that promotes the role and growth of, of, if you like, the indigenous private sector within that country, so homegrown companies, rather than promoting foreign-owned private companies to come in to provide those services. Um, so do you see that as a as a way of helping to, to grow the domestic capability within countries? Yeah, actually, I think this is a great opportunity for developing countries um, the, to strengthen the private sector in the country and actually to take advantage of the resources, the energy and the interest of people in weather services within the country. We found a lot not in all countries, obviously, but in uh, in many developing countries, we found that there was uh, a lot of ideas and interest around using weather service and weather services and weather data, for example, to uh, create better financial situations, make turn unbankable by uh, smallholder farmers into bankable smallholder farmers by providing them with a weather index insurance. Um, so there's a lot of it going on. There is partial collaboration between those companies and the NMHS, and it should be strengthened in the sense um, to make sure that NMHS has a clear mandate and role, is sufficiently equipped, also financially supported to do this, and then let the market do its bit and have the benefit of the weather data being available and used in the market. Christopher, I'm curious that when you compare um, an indigenous company versus an international one, I mean, assuming that an international one and a national one can provide an equal level of service, does the international one benefit from not paying local taxes or not, not uh, employing people? I mean, what, what's this fundamental difference? So I'm a little bit uh, out of the depth to comment on the um, 
financial or international financial aspects of it other than saying of course it will be best to have the taxes paid within the country um, i would like to draw the attention to a different aspect which is of course international companies um, could have local uh, representations but if you have local people that are also engaged partially in their um, communities uh, people whose career um, has also options in the country and where the options in the country get better and better as say um, the market in those areas grows um, that is a huge benefit uh, that i believe is this opportunity that i mentioned uh, initially with answering your question so another recommendation calls for national meteorological and hydrological services to be properly and sustainably funded according to their role as defined by a hydromet strategy which in turn is recommended to be developed at country level to maximize the socioeconomic benefits of the full value chain. Did you find evidence that such strategies exist? And, and if not, why do you think that's the case? The strategies certainly exist if you look at the example of the United States, um, who went about 15 uh, odd years ago um, to a similar process of establishing just how much um, non-public services uh, the National Weather Service should render and uh, really focusing it on the enabling services. Uh, if you look at the international weather market now, which is, by the way, not very easy to assess because it's hard uh, to get good numbers, but uh, you certainly can see uh, at, a, at a high level that the U.S has a very strong weather market uh, with sizable companies in it, uh, with sizable revenues in it, and with companies that compete internationally uh, quite successfully. So yeah, there you have an example uh, of where this was followed. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Could we... Christoph, take a look at, at the funding role of development partners like the World Bank. If there's a government strategy to promote national meteorological services and the role of domestic private sectors, uh, private sector, then to what extent and, and how can development partners also help promote this strategy? Are current methods of financial support able to do this or do they need modifying, do you think? Um, so this has two aspects. Um, and... and they have both to do with the fact that while there is a lot of economic potential in getting the hydromet value chain going in a country, the cost associated with that is actually relatively low, specifically if you compare it to other infrastructure uh, projects such as road, bridge building, etc. So there is a little bit of tendency of not paying enough attention to the hydromet services and then maybe on top of that nickeling and diming them now a development partner like the world bank is of course talking uh, to all levels of government and the first thing um, where there is an or the first opportunity that is there is that of advocacy 
to in discussions, in meetings, in proposals, um, to point out um, what great potential there is in the hydromet value chain and that it needs to be looked at uh, from the government level. It's the first one. The second is because of the technical complexity and some of the technical difficulties that you have when you want to get a hydromet value chain going and because of this extra expertise that you need uh, for one and then secondly if you try to get the collaboration between uh, the public academic and private sector going when it's not really working yet um, when you look at this issue of getting this going you the best strategy actually is to look at this like a startup enterprise and start with small projects that are quite simply structured in the sense of financial controls and so on that do not use a whole lot of money and do not need a whole lot of money um, but that as small projects need to be very carefully uh, structured and accompanied uh, facilitated etc this discrepancy between it being sort of small fish to fry, but at the same time that they should be visible at high levels of government in order to get the proper support um, and being directed uh, in the right direction. There, a development partner like the World Bank uh, is in the position to actually span this entire range of interactions. Christoph, the Power of Partnership report analysed um, engagement between the public and private sector in, in quite a few separate countries' case studies. And you could come to the conclusion that they're all very different from each other and therefore one, has to, one can't necessarily uh, find some common principles. But I, I felt anyway that the recommendations that you produced in the report did actually bring out some of the general features that were common to nearly all countries that deal with weather information. Would, would that be a correct um, assumption of mine? Yeah, I think uh, uh, I'm actually quite pleased to say this because that, of course, was the goal um, or uh, one of the major challenges of the goal to, uh, of the report uh, to be able to do this. And maybe uh, it's worthwhile to just highlight a few of those recommendations that we feel just apply across the board um even if the actual translation into actions may then vary from country to country and those are really um to develop a strategy at a government level not leave it to any of the individual players to do this although of course you need the input the, the technical input from them and um, then find the country specific approach i mentioned in some countries there may already be a a fledgling private sector in others there may be none or some countries may have already very good uh, government planning processes whereas in others uh, one will have to help with building those um, and then it was a, a, a clear requirement to fund the NMHS according to the role that it has to play and last but not least to do this uh, with the help of a structured dialogue. You cannot just dictate that. That has to be developed by the three sectors together. 
I just wanted to to finish off um, our our very interesting conversation by thinking about um, developing countries particularly, and um, I think the report has has a couple of recommendations. Maybe you could highlight them about how development projects should be structured to sort of improve the situation of the weather enterprise in in those countries. I mentioned in the beginning already um, that I felt the best uh, metaphor for this was actually to create a startup enterprise, specifically uh, when you think about the developing countries. And that is heavily um, influenced by the need to together understand what one is dealing with. So there's initially a lot of uncertainties, a lot of uh, misunderstandings maybe um, that have to be worked out. And the best way to do this, and the best way to do this um, is to work together on a relatively small project that doesn't require too much financing, that doesn't require too much planning, just so that you can practice working together. So um, if I had to name a few bullet points, uh, that would be do a careful execution of one or two, not many, but one or two pilot projects and use the methods of a lean startup. I have used this term a couple of times. There's literature around it uh, that is quite uh, approachable and easy to understand. Um, and when you do that, understand and be, be clear about what drives the individual partners to participate in this common project. Um, as partners, just be honest about this and work it out together. Um, because if that's not happening, if people say one thing and they do it for another reason, uh, then you will not be able to sustain it. And uh, last but not least, don't forget to involve all three sectors together and involve them from the early phases of projects. Don't start it as one party and then try to convince others, work it out together. Uh, Christoph, one of the, the, the things that um, comes up very often in developing countries and trying to, to get projects going is access to data. And one of the recommendations that you've made is, is free and open access to data. And, and I assume you mean by that, you know, use and reuse uh, without restriction within the country. How, how will that, how can that help motivate uh, this sort of interaction? Because I, I feel that it has a, it's a very important uh, activity that must take place in order to get both public and, sec public and private sectors to actually work together because then they have common access to national infrastructure. We, are, we have promoted uh, open data or, or highlighted uh, the value of open data policies um, because they do two things among others. Um, the first is they make it easy for people to participate in the weather enterprise. If I'm a small startup having good ideas of how it could help local farmers, then if it's easy for me to get quality data from my uh, National Weather Service, it's going to be a huge advantage. 
you know, it, it, it's a make or break thing for a small company. Uh, the second is, if you make data open, it gets improved because then people will use it. They will complain when they don't like something. They will hopefully um, share um, or praise you for um, providing good data. But you set up a virtuous circle where the use of the data improves it. So for that reason, um, we feel that open data policies uh, should be put front and center because that's, they're such a strong enabler of creating socioeconomic benefits. Christoph, thank you so much for that fascinating insight into this great report that you produced uh, with others, uh, The Power of Partnership. And uh, I think we've had a great look into the, uh, the ways in which public and private and academic sectors can, can engage in future. So thanks very much, Christoph, for that. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Christoph. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Right, now it's time for another Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So David, what have you got for this episode of Wow, That's Interesting? Alan, we've often spoken about the need for more observational data for numerical weather prediction. That is, data that can be used for model initialization and data that's essential for model calibration and verification. Yes, while satellites provide most of the data for model initialization, surface data has several critical roles. One in particular is the calibration of global ensembles at national and local scales by scientists from meteorological services in their own countries working with the global centres. So important steps are getting countries to recognise the importance of sharing their data and participating in improving the models. Alan, as you know, ECMWF has made a lot of effort to increase their access to data from countries to improve the global ensembles and in turn to improve regional and national forecasts. They've shown, for example, that having access to more surface temperature and humidity data improves estimates of soil moisture, which improves forecasts of near-surface temperature and rainfall. Also, while you were ECMWF Director General, the Centre signed a Memorandum of Understanding in 2012 with RIMES, the Regional Integrated Multi-Hazard Early Warning System. This gave RIMES members from Africa to the West Pacific access to ECMWF products. But this agreement is up for renewal and ECMWF has insisted that in order to extend it, more real-time data and some historical data should be shared with the Centre. So, how has RIMES responded to this? Well, RIMES took up this challenge and recently concluded discussions with the DGs and senior forecasters of all 23 of its members' weather services. To my surprise, without exception, they all agreed to share more real-time and more historical data with ECMWF. So what does this actually mean in practice? Well, since these are non-GTS data, that is, they're not shared through existing channels with the WMO, RIMES would facilitate this data-sharing arrangement, helping with telecommunication issues and ensuring that the data are available. Initially, the countries have agreed to share data from 500 additional stations. In return, they've asked DCMWF to share high-resolution digital forecast products with them, which will deepen the collaboration between RIMES members and the centre. So just how much more data is this arrangement likely to make available and what are the implications? It's estimated that in a year or so the available data will increase to 1,500 additional stations. 
This has important implications for the countries involved. With access to high-resolution forecast products from ECMWF, they won't need to focus so much effort on developing their own independent numerical prediction systems and can put their efforts into post-processing. In time, this could lead to greater national focus on using artificial intelligence schemes, trained using reforecast data to calibrate and downscale the outputs from the global ensembles to postcode scales. The national observations would be critical to optimize the calibration of these schemes. Well, that concludes this episode of the WeatherPod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month, and in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email support at gweforum.org.